Introduction Welcome to the Abarta Audio Guide to Port Leash. This audio guide was produced in conjunction with Leash County Council, Leash Partnership and Leash Tourism. The audio guide is based on a heritage trail of the town, developed by Leash Heritage Society with the support of the Heritage Council. Our audio guide will lead you through Port Leash and will help you to discover the stories of some of the people who helped to shape the history of the town. The history of settlement at Port Leash dates back to the turbulent years of the 16th century. In 1541, King Henry VIII declared himself to be King of Ireland and the task of subjugating the country began. Crown-appointed Lord Deputies asserted themselves against the Old English and Irish clans in the struggle for land ownership. Rebellion broke out across the country. County Leash was a hotbed of rebellion at this time, and powerful local clans like the O'Moores and the O'Connors were constantly in conflict with the Crown forces. To maintain control of the region, in 1547 and 1548, Crown forces constructed two strong forts in the Midlands. Fort Governor was constructed in Dangan, County Offaly, and Fort Protector was established here in Port Leash. The forts were named after the Duke of Somerset, Edward Seymour, who was the brother-in-law to King Henry VIII and uncle to Henry's son, the future King Edward VI. Edward Seymour was a powerful and well-connected man, and he was appointed as Lord Protector of England and Governor of the King's person. The Fort Protector was built in a defensive position to the southeast of the River Trioke and to the east of the Esker Ridge, which formed a natural boundary. We will hear more about the fort later in the tour. When King Edward VI died at just 15, his older sister Mary eventually seized the throne. She was a Catholic and began to reverse many of the Protestant reforms her father and brother had instigated. Fort Protector was renamed Maryborough to honour the new Queen, and Leash and Offaly became the first planted counties in Ireland, renamed as Queen's County and King's County. The plantation of Leash Offaly was the first Tudor colonial project. It was also the most troublesome and difficult, leading to 18 insurrections against it over the next 60 years. The name Maryborough was used throughout the centuries until the War of Independence began in 1919. Maryborough was eventually changed to Port Leash, which means Fort of Leaks in Irish. The county name was also changed from Queen's County to Leash. However, the name Maryborough remained in use for decades after this change. And if you listen closely as you walk through the town, you might hear Maryborough still uttered now and again. James Finton Lawler This impressive bronze sculpture of James Finton Lawler was designed by Rory Breslin 
and erected in 2007. James Finton Lawler was born the eldest son of 12 children in Raheen in County Leash in 1807. Spinal injuries and other health problems meant that he was considered to be of weak constitution and he was homeschooled until he entered his teens when he was educated at Carlow College. James was very much influenced by his father, who was a Catholic Member of Parliament for County Leash. As James grew older, he developed a keen interest in politics and fundamentally disagreed with his father's political opinions. His father was a veteran of the Tithe Wars. He refused to pay money to the Church of Ireland in taxes and he believed in Daniel O'Connell's movement for the repeal of the Act of Union. James disagreed with his father's stance on the repeal movement, and he believed that Ireland's efforts to shake off the British Empire would be born out of a struggle. The effects of the famine in the mid-1800s galvanised him into action. He wrote about the injustices of mass emigration and of landlords using the famine to clear the lands of their tenants. The land and its ownership was central to his writings and works. James Finton Lawler worked towards establishing a tenants' league, which would fight for the rights of those working the land. This was decades before Michael Davitt and others would establish the National Land League. James Finton Lawler was one of the first nationalists to link freedom from Britain with land ownership and socialism, and he had a very real concern for the poor. He famously stated, Ireland her own and all therein, from the sod to the sky the soil of Ireland for the people of Ireland. Lawler joined the Young Irelanders, which started as a cultural nationalist movement, and he was considered to be one of their most original thinkers and writers. The movement later became more radical and militant. Lawler was arrested in 1848 for aiding an uprising in Tipperary. His health suffered in prison, but he continued to work and write tirelessly upon his release three months later. In December 1849, following a severe attack of bronchitis, James Finton Lawler died. He was 43 years old. More than 25,000 people attended his funeral. Although the impact he had on Ireland was limited during his lifetime, his legacy was reinterpreted soon after he died, and his writings were used to promote Irish patriotism, nationalism and socialism. He influenced many nationalists that quoted his works during their struggles. James Connolly, one of the leaders of the 1916 Easter Rising, delivered a fitting summation of James Finton Lawler's life and legacy. He died as he had lived, a revolutionist and a rebel against all forms of political and social injustices. 
In his writings, as we study them today, we find principles of action and society which have within them not only the best plan of campaign for a country seeking its freedom through insurrection against a dominant nation, but also the seeds of the more perfect social peace of the future. When you are ready, please leave the statue of James Finton Lawler and make your way towards the Market Square. Walk towards the large roundabout. Follow the path around the bend and cross the road safely at the pedestrian crossing. To your left, you will see large, imposing gates and an impressive building. This is the Garda Barracks. This building was erected in 1808 as a military barracks and served as headquarters for the 4th Battalion of the Leinster Regiment, the Queen's County Militia. It was taken over by Ongarda Siakona, the Irish police force, in the 1930s. Keeping the Garda barracks behind you, continue walking on the footpath following the N80 towards Tullamore. This will lead you to the Market Square, which is the next stop on the tour. Market Square The Market Square in Port Leash is actually in the shape of a diamond, and it was first delineated when St. Peter's Church, which is to the west of the diamond, was constructed in 1803. The streets that radiate north and west from the diamond, Grattan Street and Coote Street, were also laid out at this time. The Market Square became the focus of the town and many public events were held here. A large town hall was constructed in the square and this was replaced in the later 19th century with a newer town hall which was built in the French Renaissance style. This was a large impressive building that dominated the public space but unfortunately it burned to the ground in 1945. When you are ready, head west to view the next stop on our tour, St. Peter's Church. St. Peter's Church. This church was built in 1803 to replace the medieval church that is still located on Railway Street. The Church of St. Peter's was constructed on commonage land known as the Great Green of Maryborough. This was where fairs and gatherings were held. Before the church was built, this green was over 200 acres in size and it lay just outside the western gate of the town of Maryborough. The green was enclosed around 1800 and the land was divided between leading members of society in the county. After the church was constructed, the green began to diminish, and over the course of the next century, settlement expanded outside the walls of the town, and the green eventually disappeared. The church was designed by the architects Williams and Gillespie, but the tower and obelisk-style steeple of the church 
were designed by the very famous architect James Gandon. Gandon was one of the most noted architects working in Ireland in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. He designed numerous structures, particularly in Dublin, including the forecourts and the customs house, and he was also responsible for the stately Emo Court, which is located to the north of Port Leash. When you are ready, please leave St. Peter's Church and make your way back to the Market Square. Walk away from the Market Square, keeping the square behind you, and head north on Coote Street. As you walk towards the railway station, you will see a fine terrace of three beautiful Georgian houses. Walk past these, and at the railway bridge, turn right and continue until you reach our next stop, the Methodist Church and Railway Station. Methodist Church and Railway Station The Methodist Church here is the third one to be constructed in Port Leash. It was built in 1883 and was designed by the architect Morley. The construction of the church cost about £1,650 at the time. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, came to Port Leash numerous times during the 1750s to speak to the burgeoning congregation in the town. If you look across the road from the church, you will see the railway station. This was designed by Sancton Wood and was built using local limestone. The railway has operated here since 1847. A plaque on Platform 2 commemorates the father of the Irish Railways, William Dargan. He was born in 1799 near Kalesham in southeast County Leash. William Dargan was the eldest of a large family of tenant farmers living on lands belonging to John Dawson, the Earl of Port Arlington. William Dargan attended the local hedge school in the area and then worked in a surveyor's office in Carlow. With the help of powerful allies like Sir Henry Parnell, MP for Leash, he secured a job constructing part of a routeway between Holyhead and London with the renowned Scottish engineer Thomas Telford. While working on this job, William further augmented his skills and his passion for engineering and construction. He eventually brought these skills back to Ireland and was responsible for constructing over 1,000 miles of railway line across the country. He was a very fair employer and believed in looking after those who worked for him in order to yield results. During the time of the famine, he saved many workers' jobs by accepting credit rather than cash from railway companies, and there was rarely discontent among his workers. He was recognised in his lifetime as a very philanthropic presence in Irish life. He patronised the arts and was responsible for a spectacular exhibition that was held in Dublin in 1852. 
Dargan funded this exhibition, and although it was a financial loss for him, it showed that there was an enormous appetite for a permanent exhibition dedicated to the arts in Ireland. Inspired by Dargan's generous spirit, the National Gallery of Ireland opened in 1864, and a statue of William Dargan stands in its grounds. The following tribute was paid to Dargan by the committee involved in the exhibition of 1853. He still exhibits the cordiality, unaffected manner and straightforward character which secured for him hosts of friends in times past, and which, at the present day, obtain for him the respect of all classes of his countrymen. A personal enemy he could scarcely have, and we know that a political enemy he could not have at all, insomuch as in a country distracted by political and party strife, he had at all times the good sense to avoid allying himself with any class of politician, and has hence become a universal favourite. Queen Victoria was so impressed with William Dargan that when she visited Ireland in 1853, she journeyed from Kingstown, known as Dunleary today, to Mount Anvil in Dundrum, where Dargan lived. It was unprecedented for the head of the British Empire to visit a commoner's house in those times, but Victoria made an exception for William Dargan. She travelled to meet him as she wanted to offer him a baronetcy for all his services to the Empire, but Dargan refused. It is not clear why he turned down a peerage, but it is thought that he saw his work as a duty to help his country, which, in his opinion, had been largely ignored by the Crown. Dargan died in Dublin in 1867, and his funeral was one of the largest Dublin had seen since the funeral of the great liberator, Daniel O'Connell. Dargan's funeral cortege was led by over 700 railway workers, who travelled with hundreds of mourners to Glasnevin Cemetery, where he was laid to rest. Many tributes were paid to this illustrious engineer after he died. The following was penned by a fellow engineer, William Le Fanu. I have settled as engineer for different companies many of his accounts, involving many hundreds of thousands of pounds. His thorough honesty, his willingness to yield a disputed point, and his wonderful rapidity of decision rendered it a pleasure, instead of a trouble, as it generally is, to settle these accounts. Indeed, in my life, I have never met a man more quick in intelligence, more clear-sighted, and more thoroughly honourable. William Dargan was one of Ireland's heroes from the 19th century. A man of wide-ranging intellect and a sense of fairness and equity that was largely unparalleled in industrial relations, he can truly be considered one of the leading figures of 19th century Ireland. When you are ready, Leave the railway station and Methodist church and make your way up the street. Continue walking up this quiet street until you reach the roundabout, 
When you reach the roundabout, follow the road on the left or the second exit off the roundabout. This street is called Railway Street. Stop outside the gate leading into the old churchyard. Old St. Peter's Church Old St. Peter's Church was constructed in around 1560, 20 years after the Protestant Reformation of King Henry VIII. When King Henry's son, Edward, died at a young age, his Catholic sister Mary was the next heir to the throne. She set about reversing the Protestant Reformation and ordered the construction of this church as a dedicated place of Catholic worship. However, Queen Mary died just before the church was completed, and when her Protestant half-sister, Elizabeth, inherited the throne, the church became a Protestant place of worship. One of the most famous rectors associated with this church was Thomas Moss. He came to Ireland in 1690 to serve as a chaplain in William of Orange's army. After the wars, he was granted a position as rector for the thriving parish of Maryborough. The Mosses lived in Anfield on the Dublin Road, where a plaque commemorates the family today. In 1712, Thomas and his wife Martha were blessed with the arrival of their sixth child, whom they named Bartholomew. Bartholomew developed a keen interest in medicine. However, he suffered personal tragedy in 1737 when his young wife died in childbirth along with his newborn son. Bartholomew was devastated and to escape his anguish, he signed himself up to work as an apprentice for a barber surgeon with the British Army in Menorca. After completing his apprenticeship, he returned to Ireland to begin a career in midwifery. He opened the first lying-in or maternity hospital in the English-speaking world in 1745. The conditions in Dublin and the surrounding countryside were dire at that time, and Moss was appalled by the rampant poverty and destitution. Severe famine had hit Ireland in 1739 and 1740 due to prolonged bad winters. Evictions of tenants who could not pay their rent were increasing and the urban centres were becoming overrun with people from rural areas trying to escape the grinding poverty and destitution of the countryside. Moss wanted to provide food, shelter and medical care for the poor and proper training for those working with them. Very quickly, his initial lying-in hospital was deemed to be too small so he raised funds to support the move to a bigger premises. He held numerous lotteries and managed to raise the equivalent of 781,000 euros in today's money. His new premises was located at the Rotunda Gardens, just off O'Connell Street in Dublin. 
His good friend, Richard Castles, a famous architect, agreed to design the building for free and created a design which was a blend of aristocratic grandness and practical medical sense. A feature of the hospital was the very small ward sizes, which was unheard of at that time. This was an incredibly far-sighted idea, as it meant that diseases and epidemics, which were rife in other large ward hospitals, were more easily managed. The Rotunda Hospital was opened in 1757. However, Moss did not live long after the grand opening. He fell ill and after a short illness died in 1759 at the age of just 47. He left his family virtually penniless and a small grant had to be made available to his second wife and two daughters to help them to survive. However, the legacy of Bartholomew Moss, surgeon and man midwife, lives on to this day. The hospital he founded continues to espouse the aims of its founder, and in 2012 it celebrated Bartholomew's tercentenary birthday. It is estimated that over 750,000 babies have been born at the Rotunda Hospital and it is recognised internationally as a leading teaching hospital. Many less noble characters are also associated with Old St. Peter's Church. One infamous individual was Jeremiah Grant, known as Grant the Robber. Grant was from Moyne in Tipperary, and was born in around 1785. He lived with his family on a farm until his father died when he was nine. Grant then lived with his uncle, who passed his land on to him when he died. Grant set about improving the land and making it more profitable. He married in 1806 but a few short years later, he fell foul of the local landlord who began to repossess the land and goods owned by the Grant family. Grant was incensed when the landlord sold off his wife's beehives, so he produced a pistol at the auction which had been organised by the landlord. Although the pistol failed to discharge, Grant was charged with attempted murder, a felony that carried the penalty of death. He fled his home and travelled back to Moyne, the place of his birth, where he became involved in an illicit distillery. During this time, a rumour spread that Jeremiah's sister was having an affair with the landlord's son. Jeremiah and his brother were enraged with this slight to their family honour. When the young lovers heard that the two brothers were after them, the couple fabricated a story about an attempted murder of the landlord's son. The two grandbrothers were caught by police, but on the way to the jail, Jeremiah managed to get the guards drunk and he escaped. Unfortunately for him, he was quickly recaptured when he returned to Moyne. 
His brother failed to get away and so remained in custody. Racked with guilt and remorse and fearing for the lives of her brothers, their sister had a change of heart. She decided the only way to save them was to kill her lover. She lured the landlord's son to an isolated spot and when he fell asleep, she murdered him. She was quickly arrested and Jeremiah's wife had to intercede for the family and begged for forgiveness. Jeremiah was sentenced to 12 months in prison. John, his brother, was sentenced to transportation to Australia and Jeremiah's sister was sentenced to death by hanging. When Jeremiah left prison in 1811, he was penniless and had a family to feed. He started working with a horse thief and the two of them became highwaymen, terrorizing the highways and byways of Ireland. This was a harsh way of life and he had many brushes with the law. In 1812, he decided to leave Ireland, but felt homesick and returned a short while later and quickly fell back into criminality. His exploits were audacious. He is reputed to have broken into a house with a number of accomplices, and while they were rifling through all the goods, Jeremiah played the piano whilst drinking tea. He was eventually caught and arrested in 1815 and taken to Thurless Prison. He managed to unpick his manacles and escape his cell, but got lost in the prison corridors and was quickly overpowered. He was brought to Clonmel jail, where a saw was smuggled into him. Again, he managed to free himself and other prisoners and escape the jail. He swam across the wide river shore, evading his captors. However, the rest of the escapees were immediately caught. Jeremiah's life on the run wasn't to last and after a short time, he was recaptured again and brought eventually to Maryborough Jail. No more escape opportunities were to present themselves and Jeremiah, also known as Grant the Robber, was sentenced to death by hanging. Shortly before the sentence was carried out, Jeremiah told his story to a sympathetic guard who transcribed the escapades of this self-made highwayman. Jeremiah was hanged in front of the old jail, which is now the Dunamace Art Centre in 1816. He was the last man to be hanged publicly in Maryborough. His body was buried in the graveyard here on the left-hand side, just inside the gate, and his grave is covered with stones. When you are ready, please make your way back to the small roundabout and turn right. Walk up this street past the Adult Education Centre. You will see a circular tower on your right and the remains of the walls of the Fort Protector. Stop at the large plaza in front of the tower. This is Fitzmaurice Place. Fort Protector and Fitzmaurice Place. 
You are now standing at Fitzmaurice Place, and it was named after a famous leashman called James Fitzmaurice. James Fitzmaurice was born in Dublin in 1898, but moved with his family to Port Leash in 1902. James was enrolled in the local Christian Brothers School in 1905. When World War I broke out, James enlisted with the 7th Battalion of the Leinsters, even though he was only 16 years old. His father intervened and withdrew him from the battalion. In 1915, James enlisted once more, and this time he was sent to France and fought in the Battle of the Somme. By the time he was 19, James was a corporal and was given a commission as second lieutenant. In 1918, he began flying with the Royal Air Force and thus began a love affair with the air that was to last for the rest of his life. Fitzmaurice flew mail over and back across Europe. But as the years wore on, James began to dream about a much more dangerous mission, a transatlantic flight. James eventually resigned from the RAF and joined the Irish Army, which was formed after Ireland became a free state in 1922. He had risen to the rank of Commandant by 1928. Charles Lindbergh had completed the first non-stop west-to-east transatlantic flight, leaving New York and arriving in Paris in 1927. Lindbergh said that he knew he had arrived in Europe when he saw the green fields of Ireland. Ireland's strategic position on the edge of the Atlantic was recognised by a German crew that wanted to make the record of the first east-west transatlantic flight. They chose Fitzmaurice as a co-pilot, as he had years of experience and was commander of Ireland's main airfield at Baldonnell. The two German pilots and Fitzmaurice set out in a plane called Bremen on the 12th of April 1928 although catastrophe nearly befell the dangerous record-breaking attempt at the outset. As the plane was taxiing out on the runway at Baldonnell, Fitzmaurice saw a sheep wander directly in front of the plane. Fitzmaurice shouted out at the top of his lungs, and luckily the plane had enough momentum to start ascending and avoid the sheep who was oblivious to the havoc that could have been caused. The German-Irish team flew for over 36 hours and on the 13th of April landed on Greenlee Island, which is situated between Labrador and Newfoundland. The crew had originally planned to land in New York, but fuel leaks during the flight and a faulty compass meant they had to strike land as soon as possible. After flying over the frozen, empty landscape of the Arctic, they eventually spotted a lighthouse on the little-known Greenlee Island, which became renowned across the world 
once news of the remarkable journey became public. The crew of the Bremen spent two months traveling around the United States of America and were celebrated as heroes. Writing about his adventures, Fitzmaurice stated, I feel certain that in the pride of achievement, the adventure of the Bremen will be seen in all its full significance and that my dead comrades and I will therefore not soon be forgotten. Fitzmaurice went on to live a full and varied life. He resigned from the Irish Air Force in 1929 and went on to establish a club for servicemen in Britain. He died at the age of 67 in 1965 in Dublin. In Fitzmaurice Place, you can also see a circular tower and large imposing stone walls. This is all that remains of Fort Protector at Maryborough. Fort Protector was renamed as Maryborough Fort in honour of Queen Mary in 1556. This was around the same time that the County of Leash became known as Queen's County. The land here where the Fort Protector stands had originally been in the hands of the Irish clans like the O'Moores and the O'Dempseys. However, an English campaign was launched against those clans after the failure of the Silken Thomas Rebellion. The leading members of the clans were taken to London under arrest and their lands were confiscated. It was deemed necessary to establish a fort here to protect the southern flank of the Pale, at that time the main English settlement in Ireland, and a settlement quickly grew around this fort. A historical record from the time outlines the difficulties faced in the early years. The new planted inhabitants had been so molested continually with the multitudes of the first natives there, the O'Moors, that they have in a manner recovered the country again and expelled all the English inhabitants, saving three or four, which contain themselves in their castles till they be relieved from England. These O'Moors were almost extinct, but they have increased again chiefly for lack of good government. The fort that was raised here in 1548 was partially demolished in 1650 by Colonel John Hewson, who was part of Cromwell's army. All that survives today of that fort are the remains of the circular tower and a line of wall. Looking at the tower, you can see that the base is much thicker and wider than the rest of the building. This is known as a base batter and is a defensive feature that was built into castles and forts across Ireland. The idea for a base batter is to ensure that the walls of the fort cannot be undermined. Floor lodges within the circular tower indicate that it would originally have been three stories high. In the 19th century, a flour mill was built within the line of the old walls. This was a very large water-powered mill that was operated by the Odlum family from the 1860s onwards. A fire swept through the mill in 1909 
destroying the operation, but the mill was rebuilt in 1911. The mill was stopped in 1978, but the site was still used to dry grain. When this was stopped in the 1980s, the buildings were demolished shortly afterwards. The site has remained derelict since. Fitzmaurice Place was unveiled in 2001. When you are ready, please walk up the street towards the large building across the road from Fitzmaurice Place. This is the Presentation Convent. The Presentation Convent The Presentation Order of Nuns arrived in Port Leash, or Maryborough as it was known then, from Carlow in the early 1820s. They had been invited to the town by Reverend O'Connor. When the three nuns arrived by coach from Carlow, a young woman was eager to join the order and devote her life to God. Her name was Anna Brennan, and her father, Peter, in an act of generosity, bestowed his house, garden, and a large field adjoining the house to the presentation order. The large building in front of you is the very house that Peter Brennan gave to his daughter as a dowry. Peter was obviously a very devout and wealthy man, as two years before the nuns arrived in the town, he had granted land to the reverend to construct a Catholic church in the town. That church was St. Peter and Paul's, and it was built in a grand Gothic style. The church was open for over 120 years, until the 1960s, when a larger church was required for the population of the town. This large church was built on the Dublin Road, and the grand Gothic church that once stood here was completely demolished in the 1980s. The convent, which now stands empty, was a large, imposing dwelling that still contains a hidden history within the fabric of the walls. A tower house is located at the back of the convent. This tower house was probably constructed around the time of the Fort Protector in the 16th century. It survives to its full height and like the circular tower of the fort, has an impressive base batter protecting the structure of the tower. In the 19th century, the tower house was incorporated into the large grand house that was to become the convent. This is the oldest house in Port Leash and was used at different times as a prison and an infirmary. When the presentation order of nuns arrived in the town, they quickly set about establishing a school. This school was opened in 1824 and was based in the cellars beneath the newly constructed church. The cellars did not make ideal classrooms as they were airless and damp. Over 216 children flocked to this fledgling school, but the nuns suffered while teaching in those dank conditions. 
It is said that three nuns died within a short time of the school's founding from afflictions associated with the damp conditions of the classrooms. Dr. Jacob, who was a physician from the famous Jacob Medical Family, called a meeting in the town and implored the townspeople to raise funds to construct a dedicated school. He himself is recorded as donating a large sum of money. The nuns had influential and powerful friends. It is said that Daniel O'Connell visited the convent when he was staying in Port Leash and advised the nuns on many legal matters, including how to secure their property. Frances Anne Spencer Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, who was Winston Churchill's grandmother, also visited the Presentation Sisters here in Port Leash. Her sister was Lady Aileen, Countess Port Arlington, and she lived at Emo Court. She had converted to Catholicism in the 1860s, and the Duchess of Marlborough became a great benefactor to Catholic schools and establishments after the death of her sister in 1874. The Duchess took tea with the nuns in the parlour and spoke warmly of how the nuns' kindness and charity had greatly affected her own sister, who had spoken so enthusiastically about the work that the nuns were doing for the poor in Port Leash. The school that the Presentation Order established in the 1820s has evolved and grown into two different primary schools and a secondary school. Although the nuns have moved out of the convent as their numbers dwindled, the legacy of education and charity provided by the nuns is still evident in the town today. When you are ready, leave Fitzmaurice Place by walking back down the street and turning right. Follow the road for a couple of minutes. You will see a park on your right. This is the Memorial Park at Millview. Many sons of County Leash fought and died in the Great War. This was a contentious issue at the time, as many in Ireland resented the Irishmen who fought for Britain in the First World War. Some saw these soldiers as traitors, and as they were fighting in the trenches of Belgium, the 1916 Easter Rising and the military struggle to free Ireland from British control was erupting at home. For a number of years after the war, the councillors here in Portleash refused to commission a memorial for the war dead. But in 1926, permission was granted and this memorial, designed by Thomas Scully, was erected in 1928. It was erected in memory of the 17 officers and 160 non-commissioned officers of the 4th Leinster Regiment who fought in the Great War. The 4th Leinster was headquartered at what is now the Garda Barracks. The memorial also has a quote from the Book of Ezekiel. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon their slain, that they may live. This park was not the original resting place of the memorial. 
It was initially located on a roundabout in Church Street, near Old St. Paul's Church. The memorial was forgotten for decades as Ireland struggled to forget the past and disentangle itself from its complicated history with Britain. In 1990, an armistice commemoration was revived in Port Leash. For decades, the sacrifice of those Irish men who fought in World War I had been ignored. But with the revival of this commemoration, religious, military and civic figures came together with the descendants of those men to remember them. A few years later, it was deemed prudent to move the memorial to a more fitting space and in 2001, it was taken down stone by stone and rebuilt here at the Memorial Park. In 2008, a large sculpture was added to the park, which commemorates those who gave their lives in the service of the United Nations. When you are ready, please leave the Memorial Park, cross the road safely and walk alongside the Ridge Graveyard. There is a gate into the graveyard at the top of the road. Ridge Graveyard The burial ridge of Maryborough is very unusual. The burial ground is built on top of an esker. An esker is a geological legacy from the Ice Age. Eskers formed in water-filled tunnels beneath ice sheets as sand and gravel accumulated due to deglaciation. When the walls of the tunnels melted, the sand and gravel deposits remained, leaving ridges snaking their way across the landscape of the Irish Midlands. The eskers that traverse Leash and other Midland counties were formed around 10,000 years ago. The ridge here at Port Leash became an important routeway as it allowed people to move safely across the low-lying, boggy landscape. Sometime in the 17th century, the ridge began to be used as a burial ground. It is recorded that there was a church on the site here, but no traces of that church can be found. There are many inscribed and uninscribed headstones within the graveyard, most dating to the 18th and 19th centuries. The graveyard was shut down in 1897, when St. Peter and Paul's Cemetery was opened on the Stradbally Road. Today, a path winds up through the graveyard, and there is a bench at the top of the ridge where you can sit and take in the spectacular view over Port Leash. When you are ready, please leave the graveyard, following the path back down to the entrance. Walk around to the right and cross the road safely at the pedestrian crossing. Keep the new St. Peter and Paul's Church to your left, with Port Leach's house to your right. Built in 1808, Port Leach's house was home to the Jacob family for over 100 years. Dr. John Jacob opened the old county infirmary on the Dublin Road in the early 1800s, and his son, Arthur Jacob, was a groundbreaking doctor 
who discovered, among other things, an important part of the retina in the eye, named in his honour as Membrana Jacobi. Walk down this road, keeping the church on your left, and when you reach the next roundabout at Bridge Street, turn right. Bridge Street. Bridge Street is named after the bridge that crosses the River Trioke, a tributary of the River Barrow. The bridge that spans the Trioke at the top of Bridge Street was originally built in the 1840s and reconstructed in the 1970s. As you walk along Bridge Street, you will see houses and shops on either side of the street. Many of these houses were constructed in the 19th century as the town of Port Leash was expanding. The 19th century was a period of large-scale building projects across the town of Port Leash. New houses and civic buildings were constructed around the perimeter of the old fort of Maryborough. One of the most imposing buildings that was constructed at this time was the new jail. This building was called the County Jail and House of Correction and it was built in 1830 on the Dublin Road. This jail replaced the smaller jail building which had been located beside the courthouse. The new jail was designed by William Dean Butler and was built in the Gothic Revival style. The imposing and forbidding large Gothic gates, which were part of the 1830s structure denying escape to all those interred inside the walls, still stands proud in front of the prison. This new jail was modernised over the centuries, and today it is considered to be one of the most secure prisons in Ireland. Another building on the Dublin Road that dates to the 1800s is St. Fintan's Asylum, as it was formerly known. It was constructed in 1832 and built in the neoclassical style of architecture. It is located across the road from the prison, and if you have the time, there's a lovely walk through the grounds of this hospital. When you are ready, Continue on to Main Street. You will see a large red brick Victorian building on your right. Please stop in front of this building. Main Street. This large imposing Victorian red brick building was built in the late 19th century and was originally the Munster and Leinster Bank, which opened in 1895. This handsome construction was designed by architect John Joseph O'Callaghan. Munster and Leinster Bank operated here until 1966, when they and two other companies amalgamated to form Allied Irish Banks, and thus the building became an AIB branch. In the late 1980s, AIB made the decision to relocate to Leicester Square, off Main Street, as the building had become too small for their needs. The building has been put to many different purposes in the subsequent years, including tea rooms, 
an interior design shop and an Indian restaurant. Continue walking down the main street towards the courthouse and Dunamace Art Centre. The courthouse and Dunamace Art Centre. There has been a courthouse standing at this spot for over 400 years. The building that occupies the space today was actually constructed over 230 years ago to replace the earlier courthouse which had been burnt down. The architect of this courthouse was Sir Richard Morrison, a former pupil of James Gandon. One of the most famous trials to have taken place at the courthouse was the trial of the Reverend Father McFadden. He was a priest working in Guidor in County Donegal and had come to the attention of the authorities as he was very active in the National Land League. He believed in tenants' rights and abhorred the evictions of tenants and depredations that were being inflicted by the landlords on the poorer people. He was imprisoned in 1888 for organising a boycott and non-payment of rents. In 1889, Detective Inspector Martin came to arrest McFadden again, just as the priest was finishing mass. Local men intervened and gave the detective such a brutal and savage beating that he died on the steps of the priest's house. Father McFadden and 12 of his parishioners were arrested shortly afterwards and brought to Maryborough, far away from the scene of the crime and a sympathetic local jury. The trial was a very protracted affair, but eventually Father McFadden was charged not with manslaughter, but with obstruction of justice and was released from prison. His co-accused received long sentences, some lasting for 30 years. Another infamous case was heard in this courthouse in 1876. A travelling rosary beads repairman known as Edward Egney was accused of murdering Sister Frances de Sales Fitzpatrick in the convent. His defence was that God wanted nuns and his job was to send them to him. This case caused outrage in the town and cries of hang him, tear him to pieces were shouted across the courtroom. Edward Egney was deemed by the court to be insane and was committed to a facility in Dundrum known at that time as the Criminal Lunatic Asylum. The jail was originally attached to the courthouse. This was where many notorious prisoners were held before the new jail was constructed in the 1830s. Turn right at the courthouse to see the facade of the old Bridewell, or jail, which has now become the Dunamace Art Centre. This jail was the scene of many public hangings. One of the most famous hangings that took place right at this very spot outside the jail was the hanging of Jeremiah Grant, 
known as Grant the Robber, who he met in Track 5. The jail was closed in 1830, when the new facility was built on the Dublin Road. The jail here was considered too small to hold the increasing numbers of criminals and those awaiting trial. The building was then reused as a police barracks. It was then converted into the public library. The library was eventually relocated in the 1990s and a series of archaeological excavations took place at the site here before it was converted to the art centre. During the course of those archaeological investigations, a number of skeletons were uncovered. They had been buried in coffins and had probably died in the prison during the 18th and 19th centuries. They were reburied in the modern graveyard on the Stradbally Road. Today, the old jail serves as the Dunamace Art Centre and has a fantastic programme of exhibits and events throughout the year. There is also an excellent coffee shop in the art centre that is well worth a visit. Conclusion We hope you have enjoyed this audio guide that has led you through the history and heritage of Port Leash and the stories of some of Port Leash's most famous characters throughout the ages. People like James Finton Lawler and William Dargan have had an enormous impact not only on Port Leash, but on Ireland and even further afield. Recently, an annual James Finton Lawler School was established by Leash County Council and Leash Heritage Society to celebrate the history and works of Lawler, a fitting tribute to a significant national figure who engaged directly with the political climate of his time, fighting for land rights on behalf of the oppressed Irish farming community and the working classes. For more information, please visit jamesfintonlawler.ie This audio guide was produced in conjunction with Leash County Council, Leash Partnership, Leash Heritage Society and Leash Tourism and was part funded by Leash Partnership through the European Agricultural Fund for Rural Development. Ganairi on Boherlat. May the road rise to meet you.